Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. This is episode 1553, Make Mead Like a Viking with Jeremy Zimmerman. Jeremy is the author of the excellent book, Make Mead Like a Viking, recently released by Chelsea Green Publishing, and is also a regular contributor to earthandear.com. He joins me today to discuss how his background as a homesteader, combined with an interest in mead and Vikings, led to the focus of this book. Along the way, we touch on some favorite mead styles, how to get started, and developing your own mead-making rituals and traditions. If you enjoy this conversation, visit the support tab at thepermaculturepodcast.com and find out how you can directly contribute to the ongoing production of this show. Now then, on to Jeremy Zimmerman. I'll join you afterwards with a brief review of the book. Then, Jeremy, if you can give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to make mead, and in turn write, make mead like a Viking. Starts pretty much with my childhood, I guess. I grew up on a, on a Kentucky farm. My parents were of the, uh, the Back to the Landers um, sort of uh, group in the 70s. They had both grown up in kind of suburban areas in northern Kentucky and near Cincinnati, and just wanted to to get out of all that and be self-sufficient. So they found about 40 acres down in, in northern Kentucky in uh, Gallatin County, which is pretty much smack in between Louisville and Cincinnati. The land they found was perfect for what they needed. The house was not so perfect, but they were ready to fix it up and you know build a homestead. Essentially, it was an old, old, maybe 100 years old farmhouse. Had holes in the roof. They got snowed on in their bed in the winter. And, you know, us kids grew up tearing down walls and helping rebuild things. And so that's kind of how I got into the self-sufficiency sort of a lifestyle as I grew up in it. I have um, four siblings. All of us were at some point or another homeschooled. I was homeschooled all the way up through high school. And my father taught. English in high school. So I decided to go to high school, which I now think was not the best idea, going from homeschool to high school, especially for kind of a shy, backward sort of kid. It helped me with some social things and getting to know what you know people were really like, I guess. But that's kind of how it all started. And then I, I kind of inherited my dad's interest in, in reading and in books. And when I went off to Berea College, which is in eastern Kentucky, and that's where I live now is still is in Berea, Kentucky. I realized how much I enjoyed writing, and so that's how I, I became an English major. I played around with drama a little bit. I was editor of the college newspaper, the, uh, the Pinnacle was called. And from there, graduated, decided to explore, got married to my first wife. We headed out to Seattle, which is where she was from. I had a great seven, eight years just traveling around the Northwest, Spent a little bit of time in Colorado and in New Mexico, all over the Southwest. Did a bit of driving around in a 1970 VW bus doing the whole hippie thing. And during that period, I I was in a craft beer mecca, essentially. So really got into beer, got into brewing, and you know, brewed quite a bit of beer for a while. I had an idea of what mead was, but I initially didn't really pursue that. But over time, I started discovering commercial meads and trying them and enjoying them. And when I moved back to Kentucky, my good friend Dave Brown, who I grew up with, and my, my brother Zach Zimmerman and my friend Steve Cole, I call them the, uh, the trio of Vikings, all of us share an interest in both Vikings and in mead. And Steve and I in particular were very interested in learning how the Vikings made it in particular, just because that was a personal interest of ours. But also, because he grew up similar to the way I did, and we both wanted to know how to do things without having to go to a store, without having to spend any more money than we had to, how to make things using what was on the land around us, what we'd grown, what we'd foraged. So the, the whole Viking thing was just, it made it interesting, but it also was kind of a focal point because, you know, as I researched more and more into that, they were... Even for you know ancient Europe, they were more self-sufficient than a lot of their other counterparts because a lot of them were from northern Scandinavia, 
that's where they were initially based. Eventually, they moved out and settled other places, but they didn't really have a whole lot of resources to deal with. They were in cold, dark areas with long, dark winters. And so, yeah, long story short, that's um, that's how I got to where I am. And there's another phase to that story, if you'd like me to continue with this. Please do. That's where I came from. That's kind of how I got into doing what you know, what I do now and ended up writing this book, Make Need Like a Viking. When I moved back to Kentucky, my good friend Dan Adams, who happens to be married to my cousin, Leah Adams, who, who grew up pretty much the same way as I did. We spent a lot of time you know, playing in the woods together as kids and doing the whole homesteading thing. They had all kinds of fun playing with just sticks and rocks and all that sort of thing. But Dan started up a, um, a website called Earth and Ear. And he had grown up similar to what my parents did in kind of a northern Kentucky suburb. But he and Leah really wanted to go back to the land, essentially. They wanted to do the whole homesteading thing. But he was a programmer um, by vocation. And so, you know, his skill, his professional skill was programming, doing computer stuff. And he, he wanted to find a way to combine that with the homesteading thing so that he could he could do both. And the, the initial thought behind Earth and Air was to create a marketplace, an online marketplace where people could connect locally and trade, barter. Maybe some money could be involved here and there, but it was mostly so people who were doing the homesteading sort of thing could, they could, you know, take the things they produced or things they had access of and trade, think, you know, trade canned goods for bottles of meat or, or who knows what anything you'd produce on a homestead or maybe sell at a farmer's market. You could connect with people who had similar interests and were in, a, in your area and trade with them. But that part of it was a little complex to put together, so he started the site initially as more of a homesteading social network. And there was a, a section called the community, the community section where people could write about what they were doing, what they were interested in, a lot of hardcore DIY sort of stuff. And then they could communicate back and forth with each other on what they were doing. And that, that part took off pretty well, and that's that's where I got involved with it. Dan kept pushing me to, to get on the site and, and to do some sort of writing for it and to participate. And I had been writing for a living since I moved out of college to some degree or another. I worked in some small magazines and actually spent a good bit of my career writing resumes of all things. I would prefer to go completely away from that, and I'm moving away from it now, but that was how I how I made a living. But this gave me an opportunity to write about something that I actually enjoyed and had a passion for. So a lot of people on the site had pseudonyms when they signed up for the site. For one reason or another, sometimes it was the name of their farm, sometimes they just didn't want their name out there. And I decided to do the same thing. My friend, Stephen Cole, who I mentioned earlier, he goes by Stick Boy on the site. And he had joked joked about, joked with me at some point and that I looked kind of like a Yeti. I've got long, reddish hair. Um, at, the, at the moment, I have a big bushy beard. I haven't always had that. but So I decided to go with a red-headed Yeti, and that's, that's really how the whole meat thing started. This persona I developed for myself, which was really just, a part of me that wanted to come out, I guess. <laughs> and so I became known on the site as the Yeti, and there were a lot of other people that I went back and forth with on there, and we all just had a lot of fun. And, and Dan had heard of my interest in in the Vikings and Mead thing and kept pushing me to start experimenting with that and to, and to write about it. And so that's, that's really how the whole thing started. Like I said, I'd already been brewing, I'd already played around with mead some, but this goal of making mead like a Viking, I wanted to do it as literally as possible. I wanted to make it, and beer, I've also progressed into making beer in similar manners, but I wanted to make it how they would have made it back then, with no homebrew stores, with no no chemicals, using all natural, you know, local ingredients, or, you know, I've... Like I say, you can occasionally go and raid for ingredients, just try to make sure they're organic, but try to stick with local. And 
those, um, at the time we called them blogs, they really were more like articles. So I, I should call them articles now. For a while, we, we jokingly called them articles because we couldn't quite tell if they were blogs or articles. But they, they were getting a lot of hits. And it, I don't know if it was Dan claims it's because people enjoyed reading what, what I wrote, my personality. I suppose that may be true, but also Mead and Vikings are apparently two really big keywords right now. So <laughs> they were getting a lot of hits and clearly I was onto something. And, yeah. and I, I got connected with New Pioneer Magazine, started writing about Mead for them. I've written for Backwoods Home Magazine now about Mead and other things. And so to kind of wrap it all up, what led to the book, again, yeah, I, I have to credit Dan Adams for continuing to push me. I probably would still be sitting around writing boring technical business stuff. But um, he, he pushed me to start doing presentations. So I started out with um, the Wickerwill Festival, which is a skill-sharing festival, which used to be play, um, based where I live in Berea, Kentucky, but I believe they're going to be moving it somewhere else in Kentucky next year. But I took my first faltering steps there and did some presentations and learned a few things. And then Dan connected me with um, the Mother Earth News Fair, and I presented at one in Asheville, North Carolina. And he, he had already also connected me a bit with Chelsea Green Publishing. Yeah. So I, I they knew who I was, and I had a bit of a connection there. They're uh, one of their editors who ended up editing my book. He attended. But... Um, Chelsea Green are really, um, I liked what they had to say. I liked their books. Uh, everybody who I met and I talked to were just very genuine people, and I, it seemed right. So they're, they're the publisher I ended up going with. But at the uh, at the presentation at Mother Earth News Fair, I just kind of decided to go all out and do the whole anything, and I just got up and I was myself. I tried to be informative. You know, people seemed to enjoy it. It didn't hurt that one of the questions at the end of the presentation from a participant was, do you have a book? And you know, having a question like that and a couple publisher reps kind of standing around, that's essentially what, what led to the book. And moving into that, you already had not only a long writing career professionally with that background in English, but also a number of years writing about mead and mead making. It was kind of a natural fit to progress um, towards creating this book and combine your various interests into something accessible for others who want to get involved. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I'd always been looking to find some kind of a niche I could write about that, you know, something I actually sort of enjoy, and I'd been toiling away. You know, writing other stuff just to kind of get the mechanics of it down, to get accustomed to the uh, the publishing industry and that sort of thing. And so, I, I never realized that that me or even homesteading would be the thing that I would end up writing about. I guess you know they say write what you know. And Earth and Air, and then start, and these, the other magazines I started writing for made me realize what I knew. The uh, I guess the way that I grew up. Me, it was just it's just how you live. But there are a lot of people now. That, I don't know. I'd say, especially in the last ten years or so, I've really noticed it. A lot of other people want to go back to living this way and want to want to learn a lot. And I don't feel like I know a ton, but I I think what it comes down to is I I know a little about a lot. <laughs> and I don't know a lot about a little, but I guess I'm I know a lot about more than I realize. And, so that's what happened. There was, a, there was an audience out there just waiting for this sort of thing. I could sit and talk with you for hours and hours about this because it's something that I love and have done a lot of myself. But the mead-making side of things is one that I've only began to experiment with. Early on in the beginning of my life with all of this, before I ever started homebrewing or doing anything like that, I happened to have a friend who ran a restaurant that had the largest exotic beer list on the East Coast. But that exotic beer list wasn't like a lot of restaurants at the time that were counting microbrews and other things like that in order to kind of pad their beer list. This was a place that had beers that you couldn't get anywhere else in the country. At the time, they carried, I think it was nine of the Trappist Ales, when only... I think five or six of the monasteries were actually exporting to the United States, or was there any way that you could get them without drinking them 
on site in Europe. And with that was also things like vintage Thomas Hardy barley wines and a lot of Geist box and other things um, like the unfiltered wheats. And now I'm thinking about all those beers that I drank that were just so wonderful. Uh, but at that time, I also had a chance to drink things like the fine English or French ciders that were fermented until they were dry and were more like a sparkling white wine or a champagne and also had some meads as well but I couldn't tell you what they were it's been so long and then a couple years later I had a friend who was making a lot of sodas for events and he would just cask them and throw co2 on them and I was talking with him about how I always had an interest in brewing and He's just like, hey, here, you know, I've got all this equipment that I'm not doing anymore because I'm not making beer. I'm just doing sodas uh, because of, you know, the age of my daughters and things. Why don't I just go ahead and give it all to you and you can get started? And that's why I read things like Charlie Papazian's The New Complete Joy of Home Brewing. And then as I explored that and got more interested in fermentation, you know, you mentioned that interest in the Vikings and how they were doing things. I've always had an interest in anthropology and the history of people. And so that's when I found Stephen Herabuner and his work, such as Sacred and Herbal Healing Beers, which I know you reference him several times in your book as well. And with that work of Buner and others, the lore that came with brewing. And that's where I find that your book kind of fills this interesting role for me between Papazian and Buner, because you have all this information that is very technical at times about the art and process of brewing. But then you also have these stories about the mythology of these people and, you know, where mead comes from. As I look at my copy of, of The Complete Mead Maker from Shram that's sitting here as well. But I think that you've written a book that's really incredibly accessible for folks to get started. And through that dialogue and the storytelling, you share a lot more information in a way that really kind of caught my interest and ingrained itself that a more technical discussion of this process, I don't think would have. And I'm just wondering how you came to decide on writing the book this way, because the first, what is it like, three fifths are nothing but stories, your own and the cultural stories of the Vikings. And then you have a little bit on brewing, a couple of short sections on recipes. But even then you're telling the stories of the people who these recipes come from and how you came to make them. And it just makes for a fascinating and enjoyable read. That's kind of what I was shooting for, to find some way to make it actually engaging and enjoyable. And you know, I, I tried to enjoy writing it as much as I could. There are certainly a lot of parts of to writing a book that really aren't all that enjoyable, but you know, in general, I want to get across that, hey, you, you need to know some of the basic technical stuff. There's more complicated technical stuff you can learn if you want, but in the end, you're doing this because you want to have fun. And you want to make something that tastes good in the end, and you want to enjoy it, but there's nothing wrong with enjoying the process as well. And to be honest, as much as I, you know, worked with the technical parts to make them as accurate as possible, my big interest was the stories and the mythology and all that sort of thing. I, I'm very into anthropology and the history and the literature. I like to think of myself as a, um, as a writer first and a brewer second. I just, I'm a writer who happens to have written a book about brewing. So, <laughs> really the... When I first started on the book, I put together you know, a basic outline. You know, Chelsea Green and I went through it a little bit. We agreed that that was basically you know, what it was going to be. It ended up being a bit different than the actual outline, but most books do. And just to wrap my head around it, I, I really started out hardcore just focusing. I, I wanted to get the Viking part right, I mean, and the history and anthropology. I wanted that. I already knew how to brew. I, I knew I was going to have to sit down and go into the technical stuff. But I spent the first couple months probably going through some of the books I already had and going and finding more books. I found some obscure books through interlibrary loan and that sort of thing. And there's a section near the end, how to drink mead like a Viking, Viking games and drinking rituals and all that sort of thing. And that's really where the book started. I had to get into the mindset of how the Vikings made and enjoyed their mead before I got into the technical details of where I knew how to do it. So really, in the end, it was fluid. Like I said, that I think maybe the last chapter of the book was 
first one I started on, then I just kind of worked backwards from there. And you know, once, as I was doing all this, I was experimenting and making more meads and trying different recipes. So, yeah, that, that's kind of how it came about. I, I wanted to, I've enjoyed Kenneth Tram's book. It's some great info. I learned a lot from him. Papazian and, and Randy Mosher, those are all you know, big influences of mine. And you know, I just wanted to do my own thing, though. I wanted to make it, make something that was enjoyable and bring out some of the stories I had. And I, I felt like there was an audience for that, people who were interested in the self-sufficiency thing, who either had a homesteading background or wanted to go into that. And, you know, who doesn't like Vikings? It's it's a fun subject. They're, they have a rich, rich mythology, a rich history. Even I was surprised at how much of it was pertaining to mead. So I, I felt like that really had to come out. And that's why I started with the section with just a basic primer on Viking mythology, but also, or really Norse is a better word. That's a whole other subject, um, what the word Viking actually means. But the, the Norse, the ancient Norse, I mean, the, the Scandinavians, you know, that sort of thing. So I, I felt like I should get people into the mindset, like I mentioned, I think, in the, the preface. You know, get yourself into the mindset of brewing like a Viking. And then, you know, from there, we go into the actual technical details. And I did my best to try to make those accessible, but also, you know, enjoyable. Hopefully I succeeded. I certainly think that you did, because as a work of nonfiction, it was fun, it was engaging. Your constant reminders to be a Viking or act like a Viking was... <laughs> A lot of times you would make that kind of a statement in the middle of a section and it would really kind of break the tone and tenor in a good way and return the writing to kind of a lighthearted place. One of my favorite is, uh, what was it? Uh, Be frugal like a Viking, reuse, recycle and plunder. It just, (laughs) it was really good. And yes, uh, (laughs) yes. And always ask permission. And just, you know, those couple of words were, it was fun. And your passion comes through in what you're doing. And for me, the other side of it that made this book great is, you know, I was a home brewer for many years. I brewed all the beer for my wedding, did, I think, three different styles for that, you know, many cases in preparation for that. I'd always been told that the one beer semi-clos was only brewed between Christmas and New Year's. So I had started that tradition. But then the last beer that I ever brewed was a Russian Imperial Stout, and it finished somewhere upwards of 15% alcohol. And I'd gotten to drink two bottles of it when it was still really rough, you know, letting something uh, age in the bottle and mellow until it, it is a delight to drink. Well, before I ever got the delight to drink it, I was diagnosed with celiac disease. So stopped brewing beer because I couldn't drink it anymore. And so that last two cases of Imperial Stout I never got to enjoy, but my friends talked about how much they liked it. And it was, you know, my, I felt like my brewing skills were finally becoming good enough. I didn't have as many failures or other things. And then that happened and I kind of stepped away from it. I didn't know how to proceed. And a friend said, Hey, you know, can I have your brewing equipment? So I passed that along. Then I was doing some wine making and now I do a lot of small batch. But reading through your book, it's put me in a place where I really want to get back into working with grains again to make a braggot using some of the gluten free grains that are available now, like millet. Uh, but also knowing that molasses and sorghum are something that can be worked with. But thinking about whole grains, your like three pages on whole grain brewing was probably the most easy to understand information that I've ever encountered on whole grain brewing from all the books I've read, from all the articles, from the workshops I've attended, from my friends who are brewers who I encountered. A lot of the conversation was all about equipment and, you know, oh, well, if you're going to do it right, you need a kettle with a false bottom and all these other things. And everything I had done had just been in a sack, but I never felt really comfortable with it. And then reading what you shared. Well, that's exactly how I had done it. And it kind of demystified that process and opens up a whole new realm of fermentation as a result. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I, honestly, I, I did extract for quite a while. And eventually I realized that the syrup thing just, there wasn't quite as much, uh, you just couldn't customize things quite as much working from a kit. You could a little bit. But I, you know, I, I have two kids and you know, my wife's in a house, and we don't exactly have tons of money, so I was looking for any way I could to um, to save some money and that sort of thing. So, yeah, that, that section you were talking about, when I you know, read about um, the brew-in-a-bag method, I mean, that's essentially, it's, it's really more like how 
probably would have been done by the Vikings or not exactly, but, but yeah, I realized that you don't have to have all that stuff. It certainly helps. It's very nice to have a mash on to convert a cooler to do full all grain. There are definitely benefits to doing that and I highly recommend it, but take time to get the equipment together and don't feel like you need to jump right into that. And one of the nice things about doing braggots is you don't have to really work to get the, that perfect um, gravity, which is the amount of sugars that will turn into alcohol, essentially. And with a brew in a bag, you can do the best you can, get as much of the uh, the grains turned into sugar as, you, as you're able. And if you don't quite have the amount of sugar you're looking for, dump in a bunch of honey and you'll have plenty. <laughs> That's definitely a big tip with that is, uh, you know, honey has tons of sugars in it, so... That's the main thing you need to make alcohol is sugar. And that's one of the pieces about working with gluten-free grains is that some of them don't necessarily contain the proper enzymes for conversion from starch to sugars. And as a result of that, you know, do you add this chemical? Do you do that? But this, for me, as someone experimenting with this, provides a way to get some of those flavors without needing to be as concerned as extracting those sugars for fermentation. The honey can be what's used for that, but still getting some of that grain flavor back in. If anybody has had a braggot, it's not something you see a lot of. I find them occasionally in like specialty stores, but honestly, some of the ones I've I've had that I bought haven't been all that great. I'm sure there's some really good ones out there. Some breweries are doing, but it, it's it's some amazing stuff. The the basic um, just the extract recipe for the braggot I have in there. It's based somewhat on Ken Tram's braggot, but yeah, I I kind of made some slight adjustments of my own and, you know, I've read a lot of other different recipes. It's some amazing stuff. That was one where people tried it and they were like, yeah, you know what you're doing. This is good. And beer lovers and, you know, people who didn't like beer loved it. People who didn't like tea generally loved it. So it, yeah. it's, it's definitely a good one to serve all different kinds of people or to hoard for yourself. I'm fine with that too. Well, and the other piece of it too is that not having access to beer the way that I used to. And many of the gluten-free beers, frankly, are just awful. I miss that taste of hops, you know, a bit of that oiliness and the bitterness uh, that comes from that and have been investigating doing hopped ciders. And now the idea of doing a hopped mead or a braggot is just, well, makes me salivate a little, just the thought of, you know, putting something together this winter and then next spring, being able to open up a bottle and enjoy those tastes again in a way that I'm able to decide what the flavors are and get exactly what I want out of it. Yep. I, I think that's something you should definitely do. And, and, I, and I should mention that, you know, you mentioned the, the no gluten thing, and that, that is a big thing I get questions about in workshops and that sort of thing, and that is definitely good to emphasize is, you know, people can't do gluten or they have maybe other health issues. I mean, one of the big things I pushed with you know, making me kind of the the wild way is it's really a very healthy sort of a drink if you do it right. It's a great gluten-free option, but also if you're using raw local honey and you're taking herbs and spices and things that already have health benefits, putting all that together, yes, you're making booze out of it. Yes, it's not the best idea to drink too much of it at a time. Not that I haven't drank my share, but but yeah, it, it can be a very healthy, enlightening sort of drink. And that's where we can decide, you know, how much alcohol do we want to ferment into something by adjusting those sugars and our water-to-honey ratio and things like that in order to make something that is still enjoyable but it could be, you know, more like a soft drink like a soda. Yeah, and that's another thing I, I, I certainly try to push is, um, number one, make one-gallon batches. If you get into it and you find a recipe you really like, do five gallons or more, but... Um, just a one-gallon batch, all you really need is a quart of honey or a little more. And drink it when it's good. You don't even have to bottle it. If, if it's been fermenting for a week or two, kind of like a, a tej, the Ethiopian mead that I mentioned in the book, it's meant to be drinking young. I mean, you can, it can be anywhere from 3 to 5% alcohol, or you can age it, bottle it, let it go to like 12 to 18%. But I, I drink meads at all different stages. You, know, you can make a small mead. Um, which is just a mead that can be ready to drink in just a few weeks. It's still, you know, it's still fermenting. It's still got um, its own natural carbonation in it. 
if you let it go for too much longer than that, it's it's going to, you know, start developing flavors that are going to need time to age away. But, yeah, the point is, you know, people are just getting into it. It's well worth aging some bottles for, you know, as long as possible. But if you're bottling or if you're racking, which is switching from one vessel to another, and you taste a little bit and it's good, nobody's watching. Go ahead and have a little bit now. <laughs> and that mention of one-gallon batches, that's the conversion that I made after giving up a lot of my brewing equipment, not knowing where I was going to go. When I started to get back in, I moved to just a two-gallon um, fermentation bucket, and then I picked up a case, which was just four, one-gallon glass bottles and airlocks for everything. And I think my total investment from the brew store was like $25 at the time. I haven't priced it lately, but you know, doing small batches is a very inexpensive way to begin brewing. To do something like pick up a copy of your book, look for some things based on your suggestion list that folks can start brewing in, but if they can't find them, you know, there are online retailers and plenty of in-person brew shops where you can pick up some equipment inexpensively and just get started. Yep. Even if you're doing one-gallon batches, that doesn't mean you can't make a lot. I have, usually I have at least five different one-gallon batches and several five-gallons going at once, but, you know, just kind of stagger it out. And, and when you have one batch fermenting and going well, you can use that as yeast to start the next one. It's a technique, um, different terms for it. Um, batch swapping is kind of the technical term, taking some active ferment, starting something else with it. Uh, a lot of the uh, older books I've read refer to that as BARM, B-A-R-M. So I mentioned BARM is a way of getting wild yeast. And that's basically just active meat that you're either saving in a, in a bottle with an airlock or just transferring from one to another. What I'm getting at is you can you can do several one-gallon batches over a few weeks or a few months and just stagger them out, and you'll still end up with a whole lot of meat. It's just you don't have those giant five-gallon heavy carboys to cart around and have to rack and that sort of thing. Very accessible for someone who's in an apartment. I know that for me, I was fermenting my large carboys. I had a five-gallon and a six-gallon. We're in my basement between the weight of the glass and the liquid inside and everything else. You know, they can be 60, 70 pounds to be carrying to and from my kitchen. I much more enjoy the 10-pound gallon bottles or fermentation bucket. And with primary fermentation taking... You can do your first racking often within seven to 10 days. You can be doing a, a one-gallon batch every week, and before you know it, produce 52 gallons in a year, which is quite a number of beer bottles or wine bottles full of delicious, delectable drinks. Yep. When I first started brewing, I was in a tiny apartment in Seattle. That's when I first got into beer. Uh, there was a homebrew store called The Cellar, and that's where I picked up the Bazian's book and and quite a bit of equipment. I, I guess at the time, it was all stuff I needed. And looking back, I probably could have done without some of it. But yeah, it was just a very small apartment. I had to find corners to hide my beer in. And but yeah, I could have done a lot of one gallons if I thought about that back then. But And that's where some of my other ferments I'm doing just in quart jars. I did my first batch of kombucha. I split it between two uh, one-quart wide-mouth mason jars. I did my first batch of Tej in a one-quart mason jar, which... That didn't work out so well. That was my first wild ferment ever. And I had aerated it for a couple of days and it had just started to ferment, walked away. I didn't get to check on it for two days because I was gone, came back and it had, uh, well, some of the wild yeast and molds had decided to colonize and I had a nice green and gray scum across the top and I didn't feel comfortable skimming that off. So I'll be trying uh, my next wild ferment. I go to my brewing store here in a day or two, and uh, I want to pick up some wild natural honey there and do an aerated tej in my fermentation bucket, but be able to put an airlock on top of it in between stirrings. That is one thing about wild fermentation. It's simple, but it does require a bit of, a little bit of time and a fair bit of attention. Like I'm, I'm able to do it because I work from home. So if I've got a wild ferment going, I walk past the brewing room, I go by, I stir it a little bit. I'm able to be attentive to it. But if I've, I, I've had a few things go bad too when I've had to leave for a weekend. Or, you know, I came back once and found a, uh, I forgot to set up my ant traps. So I had a five-gallon batch going in. You know, the, the cheese clock I had on the top had fallen in. It was full of ants. <laughs> ants were all over it. I strained them all out and I ended up bottling that meat and it was still good. But... I've had a few, too, where I've had what you've had happen and just 
it, it kind of got to the point where I decided it wasn't worth trying it at that point. So yeah, you kind of do have to develop a relationship with your, your ferments. Know where they're going to be at in their life cycle. Know where you're going to be at in your life cycle. Make sure they match up. And until you get used to kind of being able to read the ferment and know how well it's going and what kind of attention it needs. Yep, pretty much. I guess to me, I've, I've done it long enough that it's just kind of seems second nature. I and mean, my ferments are just part of my family, I guess. But yeah, a lot of people come up to me and that, that's what's helped me hopefully get the technical details down in my books and my workshops is things that I hadn't really thought about because to me it was just, oh, that, that's simple. But yeah, it's simple to me because I've been doing it for a while. But, you know, people come up and have had all these difficulties with their wild ferments or, or sometimes it's just they're unsure of things. They're not quite sure if, if it should look like this, if it should smell like this. And most times, uh, you know, I hear what they're saying and it sounds like you're doing everything fine. Just, you know, pay attention to it. Just you know, give them some tips and that sort of thing. But yeah, but yeah it, it does take some time to just develop your own need personality, I guess, is one of the things I like to say in the book. You just kind of have to do it for a bit. And like anything, you do it long enough, it becomes ingrained in you. And, you know, mistakes still happen. You still forget about things. You have to leave for a weekend or longer. And it happens with anything you're making on a, in a homesteading sort of a situation. Well, and as you mentioned, there was a, I think it was a braggot that you made for your wife that kind of went a little more sour than you liked, but it wound up that she and several other people raved about it. They enjoyed it so much. So even though it was an experiment that wasn't necessarily something that you enjoyed, other people did. So unless something goes really, really sideways, very often those mistakes or what we might think of as an error in flavor is something that someone else might enjoy. I always like to say, um, share your mistakes with your friends. You never know what will happen. Yeah, like with, with the bragging one, that I had intentionally done some things... Um, kind of brew more of a traditional because a lot of traditional beers had that kind of sweet and sour mix. Sometimes it was because they blended sweets and sours together, but and this one might have been more tart than sour. My wife claims it was more of a tart flavor. To me, tart and sour are fairly similar, but, but yeah, I did intentionally do that because I, I knew she liked that flavor, but I have had a few other meads that have kind of gotten a little more tart or sour than I like, but I don't concern myself too much with trying to fix them because I, you know, I, I know I'll find somebody who will like them. Another example to take to a workshop and share with someone. Yeah, I mean, there, there have been times I've taken meads to workshops that I thought were okay. They weren't quite to my taste, and people tried them and seemed to genuinely like them. And friends of mine tried them and really liked them. Everybody has their own taste. I will fully admit there are a lot of meads that I made and that I've tried commercially or that other people have made that really aren't to my taste, but I like some flavors and I don't like others, but that doesn't stop me from trying to make all different kinds of flavors because I know they'll find a home some way or the other. So out of everything that you've made, what is your favorite uh, style of mead? Favorite style? Well, um, one thing I will say, and I mentioned in the book too, I don't really do brewing competitions or anything, I might someday. One thing I emphasize is I don't necessarily brew to style. There's a lot of you know, ancient meads. I kind of share the same mindset as you just kind of put together what, what you have. You go for a certain flavor and then you know, see what happens sort of thing. But as far as just the, in general, my, my favorite meads as far as level of sweetness, I like semi-sweets. Depending on how much you let the sugars ferment, you can go anywhere from like a dry champagne to a super sweet dessert mead. I don't like really dry. I don't like really sweet. So a semi-sweet mead, you know, I tend to really like ones that are herbal, that have herbs from the garden. Um, a lot of herbs you would use for cooking, things like marjoram and basil and sage and all that sort of thing. They, they show up in a lot of medieval mead recipes, and the ones I've tried that way are quite good kind of to put all the different things together that I particularly like in a mead. Uh, Semi-sweet, maybe bordering on sweet, with a good amount of herbs, and made from a honeycomb. I actually incorporate the comb into the mead. And that, that just does something that almost every time when I open a bottle, it's, it's almost like 
drinking that honey, but it's not like a super sweet, sickly honey. The honeycomb meads I made are the ones that really pull out the flavor of the honey more than anything. But my honest answer is Braggots are still my favorite because I'm a beer lover at heart. I really like beer, and I still make it and enjoy it. So when it comes down to the grain-based meads, which is what a braggot is essentially, are, are kind of my go-to is my all-time favorite. Well, it's something that I'll have to try because most of my experiences have been with more like a melamel, a fruit-based mead. I've had very few show meads, and most of what I've had have either been almost bone dry or semi-sweet. Not much of a range in between there, though my personal, though my personal flavor and sweetness preference tends to be in like the semi-sweet or off-dry range. I do like a bit of tart or sour, having drank quite a few of the Belgian lambics, both American styled beers like a lambic as well as the actual Belgians that uh, there's just something about that for me I would have to agree with you there I mean those are that is a flavor profile that I enjoy as well having drank my share of Belgians Belgian beers with one of my favorite styles of beer for sure anything Belgian with everywhere that we've gone today talking about your background with brewing writing the book making mead writing in general is there anything that we've missed that you'd like to make sure that the listeners know about regarding your work, making mead? Yeah, I'm sure I could go on for a couple hours if, if you let me, but um, <laughs> I think there are probably probably a couple things that as far as the mead making in general and my overall approach, brewing and the life in general, which really kind of all goes together. Brewing is part of my life at this point. Fermentation, I should say. Fermentation itself, the process of it, the working with microbes. I try to use the word fermentation as opposed to brewing. I mean, brewing, I guess, really is is just beer. That's what people generally think of when they hear brewing. I make kombucha. I make um, kefir. Some people pronounce it kefir, you know, milk-based ferment. And I do all different kinds of ferments. I mean, mead making is just, it's just part of what I do. It's a natural part of the uh, whole fermentation lifestyle. So, yeah, I've written a book about mead. I clearly enjoy it. I know a little bit about it, but, you know, at my heart, I'm a, I'm a homesteader, for lack of a better word. I currently am more of an urban homesteader because I still live in town in Berea, but I visit my family's farm a lot and help them. My mom raises goats. I occasionally butcher them and try to be outdoors as much as I can. But to go back to the mead thing, I think a couple things I really want to emphasize that I try to emphasize in the book is have fun with it. Don't overthink things. You will have mistakes. But, you know, I try to let people know that just get into it. Just start doing it. Start with small batches. Learn what your your own mead personality is, essentially. Everybody has their own level of commitment, their own time. I, I've found in a lot of homebrewing forums and you know, some interactions I've had with homebrewers that there can be a bit of snobbery, and I'm I am the anti-snob. I mean, I I grew up being picked on as a kid, maybe part of it, but also I just grew up, you know, as a very independent sort of a person, homeschooled, and that sort of thing. Just make it how you make it, enjoy it how you enjoy it. Don't get worked up about somebody who says you you can't do it that way, or you have to use tons of chemicals and that sort of thing. And that's another area I want to kind of touch on is. The use of sanitizers and you know, the um, sorbot tannins and acids and all those sorts of things. I am by no means necessarily against all of that. I have made my bat- you know, batches of beer in the past that I maybe wasn't as clean as I should have been or didn't sanitize thoroughly. And I don't know if that was the reason they turned out bad. There may have been other reasons. So, you know, be clean. You try to use natural cleaners. Um, one step is a good one. It's essentially just an oxidizer. It's similar to hydrogen peroxide. You can use that too. But, you know, I don't want to make it sound like in my book that I'm putting down essentially my heroes like Charlie Papazian and Randy Mosher and Kenneth Tram. And, you know, they all push for heavy use of sanitizers in their books. And I'm sure they have good reasons for it. But my intent in writing a book called Make Mead Like a Viking was they did not have any of that stuff. So I wanted to be authentic in how I approached that. And as I began to experiment with that, 
And I found that for the most part, it really isn't necessary. I've made plenty of good needs with just being clean, cleaning off. You know, a lot of times I'll just soak in water and let it rinse it out, let it dry, and that's it. Sometimes I use one step, but not always. Don't feel like you know if somebody's telling you who's more um, conventional when it comes to brewing that you, know, you can't do it this way. Do it how you want. You know, practice the small batches if it doesn't work for you. Don't worry about it. I've heard that mead was likely the first cultivated, if you will, food that humanity had, that it was sought out long before we had history. And we found ways to create fermented beverages and foods long before we had the chemistry or the biological sciences to explain to us what was going on. That's really the bulk of the human history of creating these foods and drinks are without that information. So yeah, we can do this. We have as a species for ages. So yeah, don't worry about that kind of snobbery or being told what does and doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. And one thing that really, I mean, you, you pretty much, you know, got it right there is that, you know, all, all this stuff about how we brew today, we had a long period in, in America when nobody could brew anything legally. And, uh, once all that, once prohibition went away and, and we got to the point where people could actually get away with brewing at home, that's when really all this, you know, at that time, you know, we, we knew more about the chemistry. We knew about sanitization and that sort of thing. But that's, that's a tiny, tiny part of human history. It really hasn't been more than 100 years or so that people were you know, still pretty much brewing like the Vikings would have. They call it farmstead brewing, if you want you you brew with what you have. You you listen to the traditions of your ancestors and how they brewed. And and you mentioned honey or mead being one of the earliest ferments, or very likely the earliest ferment, because it's so easy to get it to ferment. Somebody was you know, probably a caveman was out with a pouch. Had he found some honey and he put he put some honey in the pouch, mixed some. However they did it, it's happened. I think nearly every culture. There there are many mead making traditions outside of the Vikings. But yeah, it's such a simple ferment. To make beer, you have to find a way to get the sugars out of the grains. To There's a bit of a process to making wine. But yeah, you need sugars. And if you mix some honey, maybe a little bit of fruit fall in, you let it sit out, forget about it for a couple of days, you've got meat. It may not be the best meat at that point, but that is pretty much how it was discovered. And that can be the starting point for all of us to rediscover mead and these traditions. Make a small batch, something that ferments quickly, try it, and just keep experimenting. Let fermentation and all this become, well as it has for you, a lifestyle. And then you can learn along the way, answer many of these questions, find out what does and doesn't work for you. You're mentioned about sanitizing. You know, I did the bleach wash for a while, and that was awful. I really didn't enjoy that, the amount of water that it took and everything else. You know, these days, good hot water and some soap seems to be enough in many cases. I haven't had anything go off that way uh, once it's been behind an airlock. So yeah, play, experiment. It's not an expensive hobby once you get started, and it's something that you know provides a lifetime of learning and experience. I'll go ahead and throw in one thought too, kind of tying into what we were just discussing is um, you know going back to the history and the mythology of it and all that, mm-hmm. and ways of incorporating the way the ancients brewed and how you do it is. That for a long time, nobody knew that yeast was its own substance. It was a sort of a magic mystic to them. And they were actually, they would have chimans and, and people who were, you know, the, the mystics of whatever group they were part of who were often the ones, the ones who brewed. So they're, they're, traditionally, there's a very almost religious aspect to brewing or you know, just to fermentation in general. And... They would incorporate dances and songs and all that sort of thing to try and bring out the brew gods, essentially. And find your own way of doing that, of relating to your mead, whether it be going out into your garden with a, a jar of honey and water and you know picking a few things out that you know have some wild yeast on them or some tannins. And I don't personally do this, but I talk to mead makers who will go out and do that, maybe even on a full moon or something, and sing to the mead, or you know, they sing to their plants anyway, and that sort of thing. And me, personally, I'm I really don't think my mead wants to hear me sing to it, but um, 
I really enjoy folk music and some kind of heavier type of rock and metal with folk incorporated. It's stuff that I enjoy and I'm passionate about, so I try to you know, have that stuff going while I'm working with my needs. And it, it's just sort of my ritual. I guess what I'm getting to with all this is develop a ritual, whether it be just you making mead by yourself or getting together with other people and drinking and making mead, doing something you enjoy. If there's a good environment while you're making your mead, then who knows, maybe it makes for better mead. Thank you, Jeremy, for everything that we've covered today. I really appreciate that you would join me on the air and add your voice to the conversation of fermentation. Glad to talk to you. It's, it's been enjoyable. And that was Jeremy Zimmerman. You will find more about him and his work at jeremy-zimmerman.com as well as at earthanear.com. His book, Make Mead Like a Viking, is available through Chelsea Green Publishing and retails for $24.95. You can pick up a copy directly from Jeremy or Chelsea Green or order your own through your favorite independent bookseller today. Links to all those resources and more in the show notes. As I get into during the interview... I like Jeremy's book. A lot. On the bookshelf behind me are over a dozen books on fermentation and alcohol, including some by the authors mentioned in our conversation today, and Make Mead Like a Viking fits well among them. Lighthearted and an easy read, it blends ancient myth with modern techniques while keeping things wild and still providing all the information you need to get started and to try some meads and different things that you may not have had before or found elsewhere. If you're someone new to the world of making mead, or you have an interest in homebrewing in general, start with this book. It is as unintimidating and welcoming as a book on fermentation can come. If you're someone who's been doing this for a while, and have read many of the classics on mead, wine, beer, or spirits, I find that on a scale from Charlie Papazian's The New Complete Joy of Homebrewing and Stephen Herod Buner's Sacred and Herbal Healing Beers, Jeremy Zimmerman's Make Mead Like a Viking rests comfortably in the middle between those two. It's just a fabulous book, and whether you're a homesteader, permaculture practitioner, reenactor, or just an enthusiast, it's worth adding to your library. From here, next Monday, December 14th, is a short episode with Ethan Hughes discussing What About Christmas? and how we can transform our holiday into one of new traditions. After that, on Thursday, December 17th, is the last new interview of the year when Taj Shakluna, the permapixie, joins me to have a conversation about, well, the general state of permaculture. Until the next time, spend each day creating the world you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.